Great. Well, before I uh, introduce um, today's preacher, first, uh, I think youth, you're, it's cool for you, you guys. Just wait, okay, fine. Should we, should we say a quick hello to the Sali family? Asia and Lena, give us a wave. They are here with us. So, so lovely to have you. Um, Hazel and Lena will be around until mid-August. Uh, they'll be on a church holiday with us. So loads and loads of time to catch up with them. So if you don't get a chance to have an in-depth conversation with them today, don't worry. They're going to be around. There'll be plenty of opportunity and chance for a really lovely quality time, particularly over the weekend away. So, um, yeah, so, so good to see you guys in the flesh and have you with us um, and um, is it, is, where, where's our Tolston as well? Where's Tolston? Is there Tolston around? Tolston is here, Tolston. Tolston is here representing the Tolstons. And uh, we're now back in South Africa. And it's so good to see you and have you with us, my friend. Um, I was going to say a few things on, just uh, a couple of things on, on the Song of Songs series before um, today's preacher, who we'll introduce in a, in a minute, is going to come up and, and share. Um, the book, The Song of Songs, is obviously um, an unusual book in the Bible, to say the least. It doesn't mention God at all. Um, and uh, is essentially a, a, a collection of love poems or, uh, between a man and a woman. And it's incredibly um, intimate and passionate and, and erotic. And um, there are inevitable consequences when looking at a book like this. Some will find it easier than others. Um, if you're here and you are unhappily married, you will find this a tough series. If you are here and you are unmarried and really want to be married, then you will find this at times challenging. If you're here and you're divorced or widowed, I'm sure there'll be moments where you where you feel the pain of it. And I just wanted to say just a few things just to help sort of shepherd us through really the final uh, four or five weeks of this series. We'll be, we'll be sti- sticking with this book to the end of July. So I want to just say quickly, um, as I was just pondering this, uh, three things, really. Uh, the third is just to commend you as a church. Thank you for doing this journey with us. Um, uh, we we try to preach sermons that get to the heart. That's a good thing, right? But it has a B-side. And it means that sometimes it gets to the heart, but you go, oh, I felt that. Um, so I just want to really just, you know, on behalf of myself and Rich, just commend you for journeying with us and for allowing, you know, allowing, I guess, yourself to just sort of um, be exposed to content which at times might touch nerves and and it's important that we that we allow the Lord to do that because um, we're not just about a bit of religion here this is about our whole life and the Lord and it's important that we're able to bring the bits that are really exciting as well as the bits that are really tough and 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 find his presence in that amen just want to commend you on that um, the same thing to say is that we're nearly there <laughs> only four or five weeks to go so if it's been particularly tough and challenging again just to say you know we've all got we've all got our limits and, um, and we're nearly there and um, we're not doing Song of Songs we're not going to let's do Song of Songs again in autumn we're not going to do that okay so uh, it's a different thing but the third thing to say is that I, I do feel that that the emphasis on Christ and the church has been really appropriate and actually that, that the water level has risen among us as a church in terms of understanding his passion for us, uh, understanding not, not just that we're allowed, permitted into his presence, but one gaze from our eyes causes his heart to quicken. That does something in, in, the, in the heart and life of a church. And so I just want to say, you know what, guys, I, I just feel this has been so worth it um, and, that we've, that, and that the emphasis has been right. And I just I feel that we are a church that, in a, in a, uh, that has a, a, a more manifest passion 
for him than we did four or five months ago. And I don't think you can put a price on that. And so, again, just want to commend you. Let's keep going. Let's remain engaged um, on this. And let's introduce today's preacher is Andy Catulli. going to pray for, pray for Andy before he starts. Father, thank you, this man. Thank you, Lord, for the great work you've done in his life. Lord, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a joy to know him and to fellowship with him and to be, Lord, around your work in and through him. Thank you for the gifts that you've given him, Holy Spirit. Thank you for this gift of articulation, this love for your word. And we pray that gift would fully flow today. Lord, that he would enjoy and find real, real grace and peace and fulfillment in using spiritual gifts from you, and that we would benefit greatly from what you put in him. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Go for it. Thanks, Steph. Can you guys hear me? Great. Yeah. Awesome. I'm just going to set myself up. I've just written a little note for myself to say, all you football fans, don't worry, I'll... I'll keep to my time, but if the Holy Spirit does something, it's not my fault. So, um, Great. As, uh, as Steph mentioned, my name's Andy. Uh, for any newcomers here, you're really welcome. Uh, we are so pleased that you're with, we're here with us today. Um, and yes, I'm going to be reading from Song of Songs. Um, and again, just to recap that, um, this is really a poem between a husband and uh, and a wife, um, their declaration for their love for one another. And it also serves as an allegory for Christ's love for the church. Um, so we're going to be uh, reading from chapter 7, verse 1 to 10. So if you've got your Bible, you can open up to that. I don't know if it's going to be on the screen. No. Um, I'll give you guys a second. So... Song of Songs, chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, a noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon, by the gate of Beth Rabin. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. She responds, it goes down smoothly for my beloveds, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloveds, and his desire is for me. So um, just a bit of context, this is the third instance that we get Solomon uh, giving a detailed description of his bride's body. Uh, we've seen the first one in chapter 4, verse 1 to 6, and I'm sure you guys have heard it previously in the series, and chapter 6, verses 4 to 10. 
And what's interesting is this is the most explicit of the three, so thanks, Steph. Um, <laughs> giving me a good one right now. <laughs> and it really is Solomon declaring his love for his bride and his satisfaction in her. And then we get the response from her to him. And as Steph has mentioned as well before, is that um, the book of the Song of Songs is really an allegory for a picture of Christ's love for the church. And these images are not meant to be abstract. They're supposed to sort of elevate our minds to higher, more uh, grander images or help us to focus on more specific points. And this really illustrates the intensity and the intentionality of their love for one another. It's not sugar-coated. It's not just sweet talk. It's not flattery. It's not cheesy. It's not cheap. And it's certainly not embarrassed. It's actually desirable. It's attractive. It's alluring. It's enticing. It's adored. It's treasured. It's healthy. And it's utterly and wholly delighted in. So I'm going to look at the passage in three parts. Uh, Verses 1 to 5, we're going to look at what it means to be hot and holy. Uh, Verses 6 to 9, how to keep in love. I was actually going to say sexy and holy, but I wasn't sure about that. (laughs) And uh, it's still true. Oh, no, I said it now. (laughs) Um, I just thought hot and holy sounded better. And verses 9 to 10, we'll be looking at the satisfaction of selfless intimacy. So we'll start off in verses 1 to 5. I'm sure some of you have noticed as we were reading through that Solomon starts at the feet, moves up to the thighs, to the hips, to the chest, and to the head. And this is a bit odd because when you first meet people, you interact probably with their eyes or their face. And this is intentional. There's there's a a reason for this, and we'll touch on it later on. But let's start with verse 1a. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. Now, sure, she might have attractive feet, (laughs) Um, But it's a bit of an odd pairing, isn't it, when you hear feet and noble? We don't really conventionally put the two together. Uh, And just a quick story. Um, Myself, Rach Cosnahan and Joe Wood, we went training shopping the other week. And uh, Rach and Joe are much seasoned in this field than I am. I was just looking for an odd pair of trainers. Um, And they took me to this really cool little place that was hidden away on Tottenham Court Road. And as soon as you walked in, there were all these trainers that were lined up on the shelf. And they were all vacuum formed. They were basically covered in cling film. And I remember Joe picking up a trainer off the shelf, and he was like, I'm convinced that this is probably just shy of a thousand pounds. Now, these these trainers just look like your ordinary, bog standard Nike trainers. But I think what Joe told me was that they were sort of special edition, first of their kind. Joe's laughing now. Um, I think they ended up being something like six or seven hundred pounds. Now, if you wore those trainers, I'm sure you might feel a bit like royalty. But after time, you know, you might get a little crease, you might step in dog poo. Um, If they're white, they'll turn cream and then black. (laughs) And before you know it, you no longer feel like royalty. But this verse is not talking about this. It's not mentioning some really exquisitely made feet wear or sandals. Actually, some commentators have um, made note that Uh, wearing sandals or footwear were ancient evidences of royalty, that people were at a free and comfortable state, whereas maybe if you were a servant or a slave or a mourner, you'd be barefoot. 
And then Solomon adds to this by saying, O noble daughter, which could be translated as princely daughter. So there's this picture of her beauty which brings to mind this idea of noble birth. That when they are in her presence, it feels like they're before a princess or a queen. And here's the allegory for us. I'm sure some of you were kind of heard the echoes in Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now this is Isaiah talking 600 years prophesying about the coming Christ. And then interestingly, some of you might have remembered Romans 10, verse 15, which kind of references this verse as well. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. What's interesting about this is this is referring now to the bride, the church. See, this is wonderful. God has given his bride this honor that you would be called a princely daughter, O noble bride. And he looks at us and he says, how beautiful are your feet? How beautiful are you because you bring the good news, because you bring the gospel of peace, because you bring the gospel of happiness, because you bring the gospel of salvation. See, God's given us sandals that are fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. Verse 1b, your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master's hand. Now, a rounded jewel is smooth, it's defined, it's desirable, it's treasured, it's beautiful to look at. I'm sure some of you have some jewellery on right now which has some precious stones and you could probably just look at them for a long time. Now what this is showing is that Solomon absolutely delights in his bride's body. There's no shame, there's no blushing, and there's no lewdness. If you, if you listen to his voice, you don't get any indication of any selfish fantasy. It's not lust. It's pure appreciation and utter desire. It's love at liberty. Verse 2, your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Again, let's not read into this literally because I don't think anyone wants to be complimented on how rotund their belly is <laughs> or whether it looks like a bale of hay. Now, mine does, but I'm sure most, most women will not appreciate that comment. And again, we know that this is poetic language. See, wine, as we've seen um, elsewhere in Scripture, is an image, it's a symbolic image of passionate love. It's deep. Uh, As Steph mentioned before, it's like a wine cellar. It's hidden. You dive deep down and you find great richness. It's full-bodied love. And the wheat and the lilies could refer to actually her clothing. Um, Embroidery featured heavily at the time. And you would, use, you would wear certain jewellery that would um, potentially have the image of wheat within them, the grooves that would be within the, the jewellery itself. And lilies were embroidered within that region as well. And it's important to mention here that some commentators have made the link of verse 13 in chapter 6, the last one as we come into chapter 7. And these following verses that they could suggest that there is a dance happening here, which kind of makes sense as to why Solomon starts at the feet. Um, And then you move up to the thighs, maybe to the swaying of the hips and the chest, and then finally meeting at the face. Or it could just be that Solomon, you know, he's just observing her from a distance and he's delighting in her body. But contextually, in the Middle East, 
Dancing is heavily featured. It's, it's at weddings, it's at parties, it's at special occasions, and it's a cultural dance, and especially belly dancing. Now, my parents are from Iraq, shout out the Salis, um, and when I was a teenager, I would come down, you know, I'm just sort of your average 13-year-old boy who's grown up on an estate in North London, and they would be watching belly dancing. <laughs> it's a bit of an odd sight, seeing your mum and dad sit there complimenting on her, on her moves, but for them, it was just as normal as watching the football or the news. It was part of their culture. It was a celebration. There was, it was often accompanied by live music. There would be tambourines, drums, stringed instruments. It was normal. Verse 3. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Again, let's not read into this literally because you could get in trouble. But the picture is supposed to help us see something meaningful beyond it. Two fawns, twins of a gazelle. And we've seen this image earlier on in chapter 4. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. What this picture is depicting is youth and fruitfulness. And it's also undeniable that from her breast, she may nurse a child and bring about nourishment and growth. Now, to all my um, Jewish-speaking family here, Rach Van Ubi and Dan here, um, we know that in the Old Testament, there's a specific name given to the people of God, Ephraim or Ephraim. And sorry, God refers to us as His son Ephraim, which translates as being fruitful or doubly blessed. I don't know why He's hitting me on that name. <laughs> You see, the bride of the church is fruitful. She is like two fawns. She is doubly blessed. That's how God sees us. And then we get to verses 4 to 5, and there's a sudden chord change in this song. Things start to heighten. The imagery becomes more intense, and things begin to shift. So verse 4a, your neck is like an ivory tower. (laughs) Now Solomon was definitely a man with his words with that one. I don't know how most women respond to that. Your neck looks like a tower. Um, Again, this does not literally mean that she has a neck as long and as tall as a tower. But it could refer to how it's possibly adorned. Um, Some commentators have suggested that this is referencing one of Solomon's beautiful towers. He had many watchtowers. And a lot of them were embedded with precious stones or ornamented with shields. So this could just be an image of jewellery hanging from a neck. Uh, We've seen it in Song of Songs 1, chapter 10. Oh, sorry, chapter 1, verse 10. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. And then interestingly, in chapter 5, verse 14, uh, the bride speaks of her groom in a similar way. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. See, ivory was supposed to signify strength, purity. They were no longer stiff-necked people. There was honor and dignity as Solomon saw his bride. Verse 4b, your eyes are pools in Heshbon, or as some commentators have also mentioned, your eyes are like fish pools in Heshbon. Nice one, Solly. I got tuna in my eyes. (laughs) Now, these pools were referred to as magical The reason being is that they contained amazing fish, and the sight was mesmerizing. 
There was colours, magnificent colours that marbled across the water. They would sparkle and shimmer as the light would hit it. And these waters were also deep reservoirs. They would supply waters to the local springs. And people were refreshed through them. And Heshbon was also a region where the Israelites had victory over King Sihon, or Sihon, um, of the Amorites through Moses. So it's a place, it's a reminder of rest for the people of God. And Heshbon actually translates as, he hastens to understand or build. Now see, this is where Solomon is really good with his words. Solomon hastens to his bride. He stares helplessly into her eyes. And he seeks to know her. And then we added with Beth Rabim, which translates as the daughter of multitudes. See, Solomon knows that there will be this great blessing that will come from his bride. That is generations, children. Now, in our part of the world, we talk a lot about empowering in our culture. And especially over the last few years, we've been talking about empowering women. And here at Rev, we champion that. We love our sisters, our mothers, our daughters, our brides. And we we absolutely want to see women empowered. But I'd like us to take a little moment and just listen to what the Lord has to say about his bride. This is what he says. I have made you a deep reservoir that holds the springs of life-giving waters for the multitudes. I have made you a deep, deep reservoir that holds the springs of life-giving waters for the multitudes. You see, we are brimming with the life-giving Holy Spirit, the fountain of life that we may call and we may hasten others. Come and drink from the soul-satisfying Jesus. Come. See, this is how Jesus sees us, the bride. I've made you like this. I have put springs of living water inside you. Verse 4c, your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks towards Damascus. This kind of sounds like a diss out of a battle rap, doesn't it? Your nose is like a tower. Um, but I think, it, I think what he's doing here is he's mentioning that actually, yeah, her nose is in beautiful in form and structure, just like I mentioned before, the towers are beautifully made. But it's not literal, it's not as long and as tall. What's interesting is that her nose is facing Damascus, or her face is facing Damascus. And that is really the city of Israel's enemies. So what the picture is depicting is that she's confident. She is not fearful of her enemies. She will look directly in their eyes. And Solomon, he absolutely loves her courage. He loves it. She's confident. She will stare her enemies down. And for us, that means that the church, the bride, we can be fully confident in our groom, the king. See, the bride, she can look at her enemies unshifting, just like we were singing, hey, stand firm. He will come again. See, enemies rise against us. Persecution increases. We're marginalized. We're despised. We're disregarded. We're disappointed, we're removed, we're dispersed, we're ridiculed, we're rejected, we're beaten, we're bruised, and we're killed. 
but the bride, she stands firm. She is confident that her king will come again. See, he is victorious. He will put his enemies under his feet like a footstool. He will rule and reign with holiness and righteousness. He will heal the brokenhearted. He will bless those who mourn. He will comfort the hurting. He will renew. He will uphold. He will strengthen. He will tenderly love. He will win. Hallelujah. Verse 5a. Your head crowns you like Carmel. And your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. You see, her face is dazzling to him. He does not want to move on from this sight. As we've heard before, one glance of your eyes has captivated my heart. One glance. He's held captive. How beautiful your face is, bride. And we get this picture of him being entangled in her locks. And Carmel is a, a mountain in the northern region of Israel. Uh, if you get a chance, Google it. It's a really beautiful sight. And some have said that the fear of God is kind of like standing on a cliff edge and realizing how small and insignificant you are and how magnificent the view is. And I, th- I suspect that there's a little bit of this going on in Solomon's heart when he looks at his bride. He's like, wow. He's so enthralled by her, her vision that he's held captive. And I feel like God wants to specifically talk to us today as well about how to keep in love. And the, he really highlighted this first to me as I was preparing the sermon. And the significance of Solomon being held captive. You see, all over scripture we get the image of slaves and bond servants. And it's the idea of being kept by something. And if you look up the word keep or kept in the New Testament, you'll be pretty astounded how much of it there is and how significant that word is. One of the verses that came to mind when I was praying about it was uh, Jude 1, 21. I'm sure some of you know it off, off by heart. Keep yourself in the love of God. Keep yourself in the love of God. Keep, remain, be held, abide. Stand firm, hide in, be captive. Keep yourself there in his presence, in his love. Otherwise, you'll be drawn away by another fault-filled and disappointing view. And see, there's an active call on us by the power of the Holy Spirit to keep. And we mustn't take this lightly because it's a commandment. Keep yourself in the love of God. You'll either be preserved by it, Or you'll go elsewhere and you will wither away. John chapter 15 verse 10. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments 